Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Sasha Senderovich. Sasha is assistant professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures and the Jackson School of International Studies and a faculty affiliate at the Strom Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Washington in Seattle. Together with Harriet Murov, he translated the Soviet writer David Bergelson's novel, which was published under the title Judgment by Northwestern University Press. This project was supported in part by the Yiddish Book Center's Translation Fellowship. Together with Harriet Murov, he is currently working on In the Shadow of the Holocaust, short fiction by Jewish writers from the Soviet Union, a collection of stories by several different authors translated from both Yiddish and Russian under advanced contract with Stanford University Press. He has also published on contemporary Soviet-born emigrant Jewish authors in America. His first monograph, How the Soviet Jew is Made, was recently published by Harvard University Press. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lovely to uh, see you. I saw you briefly here at uh, while you were once again teaching at our Great Jewish Books summer program and was lovely to connect. Um, amazing book. Um, so I'm glad we connected uh, around the recent publication. And let me start off by asking you, Sasha, what drew you to write the book? Uh, well, th first of all, thank you so much for reading the book and inviting me. It's, the book is very new, as you know, so it's always a pleasure to, uh, it might be, you might be the first person I'm talking to who read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so who read the book after it was published so well listeners uh, get out there and read the book <laughs> uh thank you for the question so uh it, there are kind of multiple ways of thinking about this but the story that i tell in the book anyway uh in acknowledgments uh is that uh back about 20 years ago uh I was in an undergraduate class on Soviet literature in Amherst College, actually, uh, with my professor Jane Talman, uh, and we read some Isaac Babel, uh, whom I'd read earlier as a child. My mother actually read me some Babel when I was growing up. Uh, and I was struck by this phrase in one of the stories in Red Cavalry, uh, when the uh, the, the narrator of the stories, who is this Jewish person who's kind of in disguise uh, as, a, as a Cossack, is talking uh, to a Rebbe uh, in Shetomir, and the Rebbe asks him, what does the Jew do? And he says, I'm putting into verse the adventures of Herschel Astrapolier. And that phrase sort of struck me as I had no idea what this meant. Uh, and there began this kind of you know, back then, you know, 20 years ago, undergraduate kind of haphazard attempt to try to understand it. And then it sort of led me to these broader questions, which were, well, if they're talking in Ukraine in 1920, they're clearly not speaking, they're speaking Yiddish to each other. Why would this person who is a Jew who is hiding under a different identity be speaking in a different language to a Rebbe? So then I sort of figured out this is a calc of Yiddish. And then sort of after I started learning Yiddish, I was able to try to understand something about the implied language uh, of that Russian language story. And from there on it went, uh, it became the sort of question to try to understand this kind of you know, strange period uh, of about 20 years after the Bolshevik revolution, where there was a lot of give and take, push and pull between Russian and Yiddish, between kind of the developing Sovietness uh, of the period and also something about kind of Jewish culture. 
and I want to ask you about this sort of the time frame, as I would say, that bookends the book. Um, and as it relates to the title, can you speak a little bit about what the defining moments were that were critical in terms of writing this history? Uh, yes, thank you. A great question. Uh, and, and a difficult one in many ways. Uh, so how the Soviet Jew was made uh, as the title, uh, you know, I'm trying to think about sort of the Soviet, early Soviet era 1930s production novel, you know, how the steel was tempered. Uh, so something about the kind of socialist realist uh, title and obviously punning on it, right, to think about something uh, that isn't, um, uh, doesn't happen on its own, uh, but rather comes into being through some process, something that's being actively made, whether it's, you know, tempering steel in a, in a kind of new industrial production or this new type, I claim, right, of, of a Soviet Jew. Uh, and the book ends, uh, so uh, in some ways, I sort of joke that, like, if I go on to write other books, I could think of this one as how, how the Soviet Jew was made part one, because there's probably part two and part three to write. The part one is starting in 1917, uh, starting with the February Revolution of 1917. And that moment is important because that is the moment when the Pale of Settlement is over. Uh, so it's the provisional government that takes over from after, after the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II that uh, that uh, that uh, takes apart the Pale of Settlement, where Jews had been restricted to to live up until then, uh, which allows for greater mobility than there was before. Uh, and once the Bolshevik Revolution happens later that year. Uh, the the sort of the geographic mobility that's enabled by the end of the pale is coupled with various political, economic, social pressures uh, that come into force with the Bolshevik government that add to this kind of geographic mobility as Jews begin to move uh, in in various ways around the new Bolshevik state and then the Soviet Union and then out of it and then coming back to it sometimes. So that's the beginning and then the end. Uh, so you can think about it in different ways. One is I end around 1938, 1939, uh, which is important in various ways. Uh, 1939 is the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact uh, and the beginning of the Second World War. Uh, and, you know, obviously this is before the Holocaust, which is a significant chapter that deserves its own book. And some people are working on those books now, uh, and I will have what to say as well in my new translation project with Harriet Murav. Uh, but I think more importantly for me, the 1939 date is important because the nature of the space I talk about changes once again. So if 1917, February 1917 is the end of the Peel of Settlement, that sort of uh, changes the geographic territory uh, 1939, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, that is happening once again, when some of the territories that had been in the Pale of Settlement before 1917, then became part of new independent states of Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, also Romania, uh, get sort of reincorporated back into the Soviet Union after the Soviets occupy those territories in 1939. Uh, so as we lead up into the Holocaust, 
some of the population that had been in the pale gets sort of reincorporated back into the Soviet empire. And also the second reason uh, is more, I guess, bureaucratic, uh, uh, which has to do with the introduction of the Soviet passport, uh, the, the Soviet internal passport. Uh, the reason that that's important for me, because that tends to be an American imagination, and in particular an American Jewish imagination, what people tend to know about Soviet Jews is of a much later vintage. Uh, most people uh, who are of a certain age have memories of the Soviet Jewry movement, of being involved in advocacy on behalf of Soviet Jews in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s during the Cold War. Uh, and one of the ways in which the Soviet Jew was then identified was through the notation in their internal passport, something called paragraph five or five, line five, fifth line, uh, which noted that they were Jews, just as Russians would say Russians, Ukrainians would have Ukrainian and Jews would have Jews. So I think there's a common misconception that the Soviet state kind of very early on identified Jews in this bureaucratic fashion, which then kind of led to various periods of antisemitism. This isn't correct. <laughs> uh, the Soviet passport, internal passport, wasn't introduced until 1932. Uh, and its rationale really had to do not with Jews at all, but rather with peasants in Ukraine who were forcibly collectivized. Uh, into collective farms uh, and were prevented in their mobility uh, if they refused to join those collective farms. And even that line wasn't as uh, observed in, by Soviet bureaucracy until the 19, late 1930s, 1938 or so, uh, when the state became paranoid uh, about Poles uh, and the fact that Poles, which were then of course an independent country, might attack the Soviet Union. So they began to really track that nationality line quite closely in the late 1930s in which, at which point, right, then it begins to matter. So I try to think of the 20 or so years as this more open period between an end in 1917 of one type of geographic, ethnic, cultural restriction, and before another one really kicks in as a period of that's more open, where things are a lot less uh, regimented in any one way, uh, and things really change constantly. So you jumped ahead to my, a question I was going to ask you. I found the idea of that fifth paragraph fascinating um, because I think it told um, a larger story, as it were. And you've used the word um, liminal to describe some of this, you know, the, and that idea of straddling worlds um, uh, in transition. It's really interesting. I would, I, I would just as an aside say, you know, I come to this as a reader who's not a scholar of all this history, um, but find it fascinating um, in the same way I've been reading a lot recently uh, about um, Jews in France and, uh, you know, nationalism and identity. And, and it begins to um, really establish for me this sense of what defines Jewishness within these separate countries. So that that I the distinction of the fifth paragraph and what imposes itself on having that as part of the passport is really interesting. And there's a very long question here. Sorry about that. Um, uh, in the epilogue, you quote David Schneer uh, um, and the idea of um, the backwards shadow. So 
<laughs> in this convoluted way, can you speak a little bit about this sense of, you know, straddling the worlds, where we are within the book and how some of the past is defining the Jew and how, um, how this moves forward? Um, <laughs> yeah, this is, there's, there's a lot here. Let me see how I can, uh, and please redirect me if I, if I'm answering this in a, in some also convoluted way. So thank you for bringing up, uh, David Schneer's work. Uh, David, who of course was a big influence and, and a friend and a colleague, uh, uh, at the University of Colorado when I taught there, um, you are quoting his first book, uh, which was once his dissertation, uh, where he writes about Soviet Yiddish and the sort of uh, the culture around Soviet Yiddish uh, after the revolution and the first, you know, 15 or so years after the revolution. Uh, and he was writing at the time, so this is a book from early 2000s. Um, so this is one of the, uh, you know, earlier histories of Soviet Yiddish culture that was responding to um, a kind of, um, uh, I wouldn't say neglect, uh, but something like maybe willful ignoring uh, of that culture in Western academia and American academia, uh, that was really quite ideological. Uh, so if you think about the field, we're kind of, I'm diverging here. If you think about mm -hmm. the field of Yiddish studies uh, in, in North American context, uh, as it sort of came into its own in the 1970s and 80s, uh, was quite influenced, obviously, because of the time when it was happening by various Cold War pressures, where thinking about the Soviet Yiddish experience and Soviet Jewish experience was really marked by, let's say, the Soviet Jewry movement, right? The time when Soviet Jews were seen as having been separated from their Jewish identity by the Soviet state. Uh, so there was a sort of looking back in the early moments of Soviet Jewish history uh, as the beginning of that process of separation from Jewish identity. Uh, so uh, there was almost like no desire and or willful <laughs> neglect of that history as having been able to say anything other than that it eventually led to the sort of disintegration of Jewish identity. And David Schneer really went against the grain early on, right? Sort of looking at the really vibrant uh, Yiddish culture uh, in the Soviet Union uh, on its own without needing to first foreground its end. Uh, right, because if we do that, then we're only seeing something as leading to an eventual demise, and we're not giving a proper due to the culture itself. So that was very influential to me. Uh, on the other hand, right, and I'm, I'm writing this, I wrote this book 20 years after or so, uh, after David wrote his, uh, it's also important to know how it ends. Uh, and in the cases of the writers that I write about, you know, most get executed uh, at different moments. Uh, some in, 19, in the late 1930s as part of the purges in the 1930s, but some, and we're exactly 70 years after the, you know, August 12th, 1952, uh, 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 as part of the Jewish anti-fascist committee's um, uh, trial uh, in, in kind of late Stalinist period. So uh, to me, it's important to both be 
open-minded to looking at that early Soviet Jewish history as something that is in progress, right? To do as much as possible, and that's what I try to do in the book, to try to contextualize things, not retrospectively, <laughs> but contextually uh, with regards to kind of other Soviet uh, history, not just Jewish history. Uh, but on the other hand, right, to not lose track of the tragic ending. So it's kind of a, I don't know if I do that well, but I try to sort of balance it in some way. I think you do, if I may. Um, as the reader who's read the book, no. <laughs> um, which also then, you know, sort of leads me to the question of you. Know, my introduction to you, Sasha, has been through the Yiddish Book Center's Great Jewish Book Summer Program. Um, and you come and you're part of the faculty each year. I wish I could sit in, but luxury not afforded me. Um, and so I was very curious when I opened the book um, and I saw um, in the chapters, Bergelson's Judgment, Quebec's Zelman Yoners, Isaac Bobbles, uh, character Herschel, <laughs> as a way to telling this story. And I found it really interesting, um, again, because I know you teach Jewish literature, modern Jewish literature. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that um, in terms of why you use this as a device. And also the other thing that I found really interesting in reading this was the idea of employing folklore and humor um, and how that helps to inform the story. Uh, great question. So thank you for bringing the teaching into this. Uh, so I love great Jewish books. I've, I, now I think I'm the, the oldest in, 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 in the number of years. Do you have <laughs> the most, do you have the most tote bags as a result? <laughs> uh, but, but I, what I appreciate about not just the program, but the teaching in general, right. Is that, this book uh, took a long time to write, uh, much of it through kind of actively trying not to write it uh, by kind of procrastinating. But that procrastination involved kind of moving between various teaching positions and also translation. Uh, so, uh, and they became enormously, both became enormously important to me when I came to actually write the book. Uh, so as a teacher, and I think in my attempt to be the writer of this book, I am a kind of an intense close reader. Uh, that's what I try to teach my students and try to practice. Uh, so um, for me, major ideas about a given question or historical period or hist particular period of cultural history emerges from the text. Um, and uh, Reading the text multiple times, uh, reading it kind of obsessively. Uh, so when you mention the chapter one is about David Bergelson's judgment, uh, and I think about it as a novel about pogroms of the Russian Civil War, uh, which is not the way it has been commonly thought about. Uh, and the second chapter is about Moshe Kulbach's Zelminyaner, which is a chapter that kind of about this lovely, you know, but also tragically ending uh, family novel or rather a, a parody of a family novel set in Minsk uh, in the late 1920s, early 30s. Both of these projects have a connection to translation for me. So uh, Bergelson, I translated together with Harriet Morav, uh, 
And that's a process that takes many years. And translation is this, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, you develop this extremely intimate relationship with the text. Mm -hmm. uh, when you know it kind of backward and forward uh, and you know it along the grain and also against the grain. Uh, so uh, the, that process of reading it multiple times, translating it, talking about it with another person who is also you know, a brilliant scholar and translator for many years is something that for me yielded this chapter. So intense close reading uh, in that case. Uh, and uh, if, if I think about something like Isaac Bible, uh, that's the at the, the end of the book is chapter five is Isaac Bible, as I mentioned in the introduction, right? That's my kind of early obsession. Uh, I haven't translated Bible myself. Bible is notoriously difficult to translate, but in my teaching over the years, including in my teaching in great Jewish books, I've gone back and forth between various translators who, who translate Bible. There are several that are currently in print. There's one that I really like by Boris Jaluk. Uh, there's another one that's also very good by Val Vinokur. I've ordered their books for my students of various years at the, at the Jewish books. So when you read these various versions as a teacher, uh, you also begin to become aware of how difficult the original is and how much more explication it requires. So I try in the book to kind of be the teacher that I am in the classroom <laughs> to those readers of the book who can also read the texts now in translation. Uh, and I try to be, you know, for the non-specialist, you know, kind of cultural historian who might see the benefit of having literature and cinema also as a guide, right? Cultural cultural production as opposed to the historical document uh, and cultural production not always as a reflection of the historical record but rather an interpretation right so I don't read literature as some historians do uh, as 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 a as a kind of factual you know ascertainment of some historical hypotheses but rather I see it as itself a field which very actively participates in the cultural discourses, historical discourses that emerge and has its own take on those events, which is sometimes kind of harder to discern. So kind of to finish answering your question, I also think of this book as in some ways, and the years that it took to write it, as uh, being part of a shelf, a bookshelf of books that hadn't existed in the English translation, uh, even as you know, little as five to 10 years ago. So people can now read Dovid Bergelson in translation, right? The translation exists by me and Harriet Murav. Hillel Hawkin translated uh, Kulbag Zelminyaner. This is part of the New Yiddish Library. Uh, I edited that translation and wrote the introduction for it. So that came out about 10 years ago. So that's two chapters. There's lots and lots of translations of Isaac Babel. That's for chapter five. And then there are two other chapters in the middle where it gets a little tougher, <laughs> right? There's one chapter where I uh, think about Birabidjan, the Jewish autonomous region in the Soviet Far East, and deal mostly with things that aren't translated uh, into English in both Russian and in Yiddish. 
but there are other things that are available for people to read. There's a book coming out, for example, uh, by Gennady Estreich that will be published in the Russian short series with Bloomsbury uh, later this year on Beribijan. Uh, so there are things for people to read. And then there's a chapter about Soviet film from the 1930s, which is available to those who kind of seek it out. A little harder to find, but, but possible. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that in terms of, um, again, I mentioned earlier that for me, not a scholar of this, the way that you set this up and told the story using other aspects of cultural production, as it were, um, really, it fills it out as a story for me. Um, it gives me a sense of history um, and reaction too. again, so much of all of this is in reaction to contemporary or what was contemporary culture then. You use, in, um, if I may borrow this weird term, and the narrative arc, um, Bobble's heap of rags. And it struck me when I first read it. It's a very um, illustrative, it, you know, it calls something to mind. So when I read it, the early part of the book and at the end, and I wonder if you can talk about that as, if I may use the word, uh, something of a, a device for setting up the premise of the book? Uh, thank you for the question. No, I, I, narrative arc is, a, I'm, again, as I mentioned, this is, I'm, you're the first person I'm talking to who read the book after it was published. It's, it's really fascinating for me to kind of hear the way that you frame the question, because I think you're quite right in what I try to do, right? In telling the story, you do need a narrative arc. A slight diversion from your question, when writing about some of this work, especially about the chapter about Biribijan, where I write about what one might call bad literature, mm -hmm. uh, I had a feeling that I'm rewriting the plots to be able to tell a story that would interest the reader in the present in some new way. So, so the it's an academic book, you know, it's a book of, you know, literary scholarship, cultural history, but the narrative arc is important for telling a story. Uh, I start with a short story by Isaac Babel called The End of the Alms House. You could also translate it as The End of the Poor House. Kanyets uh, Bagadilni, which is a story uh, set uh, in the still during the Russian Civil War, uh, 1919, 1920, set in a cemetery in Odessa, where uh, a group of elderly Jews had been living in a hegdish, right? This, the communal poorhouse that was set up by a wealthy Jewish person from, from the city. Uh, and there's a conflict. Uh, I don't want to go into the detail. It's a wonderful story. There's a conflict with the cemetery's director, who is also Jewish, but he's a Jew of a different kind. Uh, at the end of which the elderly get expelled uh, from, from their poorhouse at a cemetery. Uh, and we see them at the end of the story walking along the road that once, and Bible is very careful with language, he a, was a, a kind of a stunning editor of his own work. It's all very, very precise. He talks about it as a road that had once led to Odessa. Uh, so, and, and he describes them as kind of, you know, a heap of rags, Grudy um, So that to me was also fascinating. What does it mean to be expelled from a cemetery <laughs> right after the revolution? You know, if you take the 
Soviet discourse, kind of official Soviet discourse about not just religious Jews, but religion in general, right? It is supposed to end up at a cemetery, at a place like the cemetery. That's where it ends. What does it mean for the cemetery to be the origin point, mm-hmm. right? And what does it mean for these people who would have left out their lives, li- sorry, li- uh, lived out their lives at, at this poor house by the cemetery, had the revolution not interfered to suddenly pick up and disperse and go somewhere. And we don't know where they go because they're not over, right? The story for Bible begins with them kind of displaced this way. And to me, this was so fascinating right? to try to think of the what I come to call the Soviet Jew as, as this figure that is jolted into, you know, a longevity <laughs> that isn't supposed to happen by kind of official accounting of, of what the revolution was supposed to accomplish. And I end um, the book uh, fast forwarding. It's, it's really hard to, you know, the book, as I mentioned, the bulk of the book does end in the late 1930s, but I take this, you know, poetic license, so to speak, in the epilogue to try to not really fast forward to the present, but to try to hear at least some echoes of the story in the present. And for me, that echo is in the work of the wonderful Russian language, Ukrainian-born author Margarita Hemlin, who was born in Chernihiv uh, in Ukraine in 1960 uh, and moved to Moscow at some point and wrote in Russian and died, unfortunately, in 2015, uh, quite young, who is just a fabulous writer. uh, And some of her work is translated into English. And Harriet Murav and I are also translating one of her stories for our new collection. Uh, She has a a collection of short stories from the early 2000s called Zhivaya Ocherids, which you could translate as a sort of living queue, like living line, line of people. Uh, which to me, the title echoes this heap of rags. Uh, and it's a, it's told by different protagonists about different protagonists, all of whom are from Ukraine, from the time when Bible story is set. They're born around that time and they kind of lived through the Soviet century that Bible didn't live to see because he was killed in 1940. Uh, and in one of these stories, uh, there is a narrator who is a woman uh, who is reflecting on the century uh, as one of the people in that kind of queue of people who are discussing their experience. So I see her and I see some of other Hemlin protagonists as like descendants uh, of that quote unquote heap of rags of Isaac Bible, people who like counterfactually, counterhistorically somehow persist, right? And they continue to live on. And in the narrative of Hemlin from the early 2000s, they continue to speak right they're they're not dead they're still there <laughs> right so that to me is just so fascinating to kind of think about this uh you can't call it an unbroken chain of transmission because intervening in it is the massive destruction of the holocaust right and for some people the kind of state sponsored antisemitism of various periods uh in uh, in the later Soviet period, uh, and yet right, there's some kind of a connection. In 
I guess my last question for you is um, how much of the idea, if you had sort of some preconceived idea of this, of the Soviet Jew, did it change in the writing of the book? <laughs> um, that's a really interesting question. So um, one of the things that I did by in my years of procrastination <laughs> and not writing this book. Uh, I'm, 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 a, I'm a decade, a little more than a decade out from the ending of my PhD studies. Uh, so often a book like this would come out, you know, shortly after. Uh, it took me a long time to come back to this work and really rethink it and redo it. I did not think of the Soviet Jew as a framing from the time when I began to do this research. That was not something that occurred to me. So I think the idea that this is something about the making of the Soviet Jew didn't occur to me until maybe 2016, when I had rediscovered the story by Bible we just talked about. and was newly struck by not the Bible I had thought about earlier, not about this kind of folklore of Hershey but rather something else. Um, and at that point, I was already coming to the question, having written a little bit about the more contemporary material. And by that contemporary material, I mean the fiction by current contemporary, you know, living, youngish still, uh, American Jewish authors who were born in the Soviet Union, people like Gary Steingart, Anu Linich, David Bismosgists, uh, and others. Uh, and in their work, I became interested, particularly in this kind of satiric vein of responding to the various conceptions made of people like them. And I'm really quoting one of the stories by a new lineage when her protagonist is called by an American Jewish woman, people like you, right? There's a notion of what a Soviet Jew is. Uh, and uh, formed in the Cold War, formed after the, you know, in 1960s, 70s, and 80s, very much shaped by Elie Wiesel's writing uh, from the early 60s on the Jews of Silence. Actually, it's the late 50s even, but it comes out in English and is really influential in the 1960s uh, as Jews who are, you know, require someone else to speak on their behalf, you know, in organized Western kind of Jewish audience. Jews who are severed from their traditions, who need to be rescued, who need to be saved. So uh, I had that sort of later iteration, at least in the American imagination of the Soviet Jew, that I saw contemporary writers pushing against, right? Trying to figure out a much more difficult question. Like, what the heck is the Soviet Jew? If you were to think of the Soviet Jew, on the Soviet Jews' own terms, right? Before someone else starts to define it. Uh, so, so I think that later, late, thinking about the later period in some ways made me want to rewind, right? All the way back to the, to, to the revolution, to 1917, to think about the origin point and to kind of begin that process. So, uh, and, and in the process of writing a book, yes, right? That changes because then you realize that, okay, you can't have that backward glance on a period you're writing about because I'm trying to understand that period in its own terms, right? I can't import the idea of 
the Soviet Jew in Cold War era American imagination back into this period, which makes me realize that this period itself maybe was not as well understood later on as it could be if we took the moment to take whatever different writers, you know, filmmakers, commentators, reviewers had to say about the, what they were doing at the time. So I think maybe, I don't know if that's answering your question, but uh, trying to kind of think about, as I said, right, if, if I were to write more books on this topic, I could think about this as, you know, first part of a, of a, of a you know, a couple of books and maybe a trio of books <laughs> to try to think about the nuances of every historical period uh, when it comes to this question of how the Soviet Jew was made. And ultimately, why is it important? You know, like, you know, to what end? That's always a question, right? For writers, definitely for editors of books, right? What is the point? Who needs to hear this? Uh, you know, we'd come back to, to this later Cold War period and the post-Cold War era, where I think the Soviet Jew was in many ways misunderstood. And the misunderstanding did result in, uh, you know, real life interactions between Jews in the West, Jews in Israel, and Jews from the Soviet Union, starting in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but really continuing in various parts, you know, point, uh, various ways to today. Uh, and uh, also trying to understand that early moment in Soviet history with its uh, attention to different ethnic, ethnic cultural groups and nationalities as something that might also help us understand at least something about, let's say, the war in Ukraine today, right? And as far as that war that is ongoing and has been going on for eight years now, but really intensified in the last six months with this massive invasion, is also uh, a kind of echo, right, of Soviet imperial ambitions uh, about which some of the writers that I write about, many of them from Ukraine, right, had sensed uh, at the time when its kind of Soviet iteration was beginning. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, I, I sometimes refer to the guilty pleasure of aspects of my job. And this is a moment of guilty pleasure, Sasha, to be able to read the book and then have this conversation with you, um, which I think there's much more to um, sort of unpack here. Um, but a great read, um, how the Soviet Jew is made. It's available online at shop.yiddishbookcenter.org and elsewhere. Um, thank you for all you bring to your work, uh, teaching uh, and writing, and looking forward to your next book, which is? Well, this is the next thing is going to be the translation with Harriet Murav, which is a collection of uh, we're settling on about eight writers uh, who wrote, some of whom wrote in Russian, some of whom wrote in Yiddish, after the war, after the Second World War, uh, uh, writing what we say in the shadow of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. about the Holocaust, sometimes indirectly, uh, but writing about the Soviet Jewish experience of the Holocaust. Great. Well, keep up the great work and um, look forward to seeing you back at the center and maybe for a longer conversation then. Um, all right. Thanks, thanks so much for joining me today.
You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.